Hello again, and welcome back to Mrs. Janeski's Always Entertaining and Truly Fascinating AP Government Podcast. In this episode, we are going to look at yet another of the foundational documents that you will need to know for your AP Government exam. Only six more to go, guys. Namely, the United States Constitution. So if you are ready to learn about the law of the land, which of course I know you are, let's go. Okay, so let's start with a recap and some historical context to set the stage for what is happening when this document is written. Prior to writing the Constitution, the governing document for the United States, as I'm sure you'll remember, was the Articles of Confederation. And the Articles of Confederation were absolutely not working. Could they be fixed? This is the initial discussion as delegates start talking about all of the many flaws. Could they be fixed or should they be thrown out and a whole new plan put in place? As you remember, under the articles, almost all of the power was given to the states. And the central government, which was made up of the legislative branch, and this is one branch, It was weak and totally ineffective. Um, They couldn't collect taxes. They couldn't raise an army. And all of the constraints placed on making any changes to the articles made it difficult to get anything done. And then because of all of these never-ending difficulties, including Congress going broke and events like Shays' Rebellion, Delegates do finally gather in Philadelphia in 1787 to debate the need to draft a new governing document, since at this point the articles definitely seem to be beyond repair. And this is how we're going to get our United States Constitution. A big thing to remember when it comes to the U.S. Constitution and the AP exam is remembering that it establishes a Republican style of government. This is in place of the Confederacy, which was established by the Articles of Confederation. And I know you know this. A Republican government is one in which the people, directly or indirectly, are the ultimate source of authority. And they elect representatives to make laws that then will serve their interests and advance the public good. Keep in mind, us Americans, we do love our drama. So there are going to be differing opinions, lots of nasty politics involved in the debates over how our government should be run and what should and should not be in this Constitution. George Washington was even reluctant to attend the Constitutional Convention. Um, He saw the need, absolutely, and he agreed that we needed a stronger national government. He just wanted to stay back at his estate at Mount Vernon. He had rheumatism. He had gone through enough, and he also, quite frankly, had voiced opinions that the convention would probably not be successful in achieving its goals. So doesn't start out on the smoothest ground. The two groups heavily debating this are, first, the Federalists, and this is the group that supported the ratification of a new constitution, and they were in favor of a more robust, powerful national government And they believe that a more powerful central government was going to be necessary to unite the individual states, make our country stronger. 
anti-federalists opposed ratification and looked at this as kind of a power grab by people like the Federalist. They believe that the power should be concentrated with the states rather than with the federal government. And they worried very much that a stronger federal government would end up being another tyranny, just like the one that they had worked so hard to overthrow when we fought the revolution. And the new constitution for them, all of the discussion at this point did not include adequate protections for the rights of either the states or individual citizens. The Constitution begins with a preamble. And the preamble begins with the words, we the people. So that's powerful and does set the tone. It is then followed by seven articles. And here you can see the overarching topic of each article in this episode. I'm not going to be able to talk about what's in every article in depth, but I do want to, as I go through the articles, let you compare how the Constitution will solve problems of the Articles of Confederation. And basically, the way that it's going to solve these problems is going to be to create that stronger central government to give the central government more power and, you know, Article 1 of the Constitution is going to kick it right off solving that first problem. So in Article 1, they decide that the first article will form the legislative branch of the federal government. And I think that's significant. It's the first article. Also take note that Article 1 is the longest section of the Constitution, and I think that speaks volumes. The power in this new government is going to be in the legislative branch, and this is seen to be the branch of the people. So what power will Congress have? The legislative branch in our new U.S. Constitution. This is, looking at the word legislative, this is law-making powers, so you know right away this will be the branch that will make the laws in the country. In Article 1, it says, All legislative power herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, which shall consist of a Senate and a House of Representatives. So right off the bat, there's a big difference because now we have a bicameral legislature, unlike under the Articles, where there were just one. There was just one house. There will be two houses and one of them, the Senate, will have equal representation. So in the Senate, each state is going to be represented equally with two senators per state. In the House of Representatives, they will be apportioned by population. And the most important section in Article 1 that you need to remember is Section 8 in which the enumerated powers of Congress are explicitly outlined. Here it says that Congress has the power to lay and collect taxes, to borrow money, to coin money, to declare war, to raise and support armies, and maintain a navy. And it goes on and on. You get the idea, but probably the most important part of this section is going to come at the end, and it's known as the Necessary and Proper Clause. You'll often hear me refer to it as the elastic clause. Same thing. Um, just like something that's elastic, 
you can work with it, you can stretch it, make it fit what you need it to fit. And they put this in the Constitution saying that Congress has the power to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States or in any department or officer thereof. I can't emphasize enough just how major it is, that sentence, especially among those who didn't see a lot of problems with the articles. What this sentence is saying is, okay, well, here are all the powers of the federal Congress, and we're going to name them, they put a list, name them explicitly. So Congress doesn't get the idea that I can just make any laws on anything, blank check. But then here comes the necessary and proper clause. And it says, but you know, if Congress really does need to make something happen with another law that's necessary and proper, it has the power to do that. And that sounds really vague. And it sounds like, again, I keep going back to like a blank check that ultimately they can always justify making a law and base it on the necessary and proper clause. This is the out-of-control power that the Anti-Federalists feared and that the necessary and proper clause would give Congress the latitude to just pass any law they wanted, even if it wasn't explicitly in Section 8. Okay, so there's that. And then it goes on to Article 2, which outlines the provisions for an executive branch or the president. And yes, under the U.S. Constitution, there is a president. First, it talks about the method of electing the president, which is by means of something called the Electoral College. And then it goes on to list the explicit powers of the president. And the first power of the president is as follows in Section 2. The president shall be commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy of the United States and the militia of the several states. So the president... This doesn't mean he can declare war. That still is under Congress. But the president is the highest in the chain of command in the military. Then in Section 3, it will go on to say that the president shall take care that the laws be faithfully executed. So, again, not making laws, but it is the president's job to enforce them. Additionally, the president is the final step in the lawmaking process. So if a bill passes through both houses of Congress, then the president has to sign it for it to become a law. And then in Article 3, it also goes on to talk about the third and final branch, which is the judicial branch. And it says that the judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. So the Constitution will provide for one federal Supreme Court, and then it gives Congress the power to go ahead and establish other courts, which later on, and we'll talk about this as we get into some of the court cases, the Judiciary Act of 1789. Now, with respect to how the Supreme Court actually works, um, 
it's important to know that the kind of jurisdiction it's granted, it just indicates what kind of disputes are within the realm of the court's power to decide. And Article 3 says the court has two kinds of jurisdiction. First, in all cases affecting ambassadors and other public ministers and councils, and those in which a state shall be party and the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction. So in these cases, the court has original jurisdiction, which means the Supreme Court can hear the case for the first time. However, in all the other cases before mentioned, the Supreme Court shall have appellate jurisdiction. And appellate jurisdiction just means that the court cannot hear the case for the first time. However, in all the other cases before mentioned, the Supreme Court shall have appellate jurisdiction and lower courts and most of the courts the Supreme Court hears are appeals from the lower courts. So we've said that the legislative branch is the one who makes our laws. So we feel like that branch is the one that's connected to us. We are the people, we follow the laws of the land, and the legislative branch makes our laws. The executive branch executes, enforces the laws, and our judicial branch interprets the laws. Whether or not they're all constitutional, whether the law has stayed within the boundaries of the Constitution. That's called judicial review. It doesn't really say that in the Constitution anywhere. That comes a little bit later. There's a court case called Marbury versus Madison, which is a court case we'll be talking about. Article 4 talks about the federal government's relationship to the states. Again, touchy subject. And the relationships among the states themselves. And then we come to Article 5, which indicates the process for amending the Constitution. It establishes a two-part process for the amendment. There's the proposal and then there's ratification. An amendment can be proposed in two ways. Either two-thirds of both houses of Congress can propose it or two-thirds of state legislatures. And then in order to ratify the amendment into law, three-fourths of the states have to agree. The three-fourths, 75%, we're doing the math, that's a high number. Which is why out of the hundreds of amendments that have been proposed, we only have 27. Remember, under the Articles of Confederation, they had the insane provision that it had to be unanimous in order to make an amendment. So, again, this is fixing it. All of the states don't have to agree. So Article 5 does make the process more achievable, but it makes it just difficult enough so it's not taken lightly. Okay, then in Article 6, there's another huge deal, a bit of a bombshell that you need to remember, and it is called the Supremacy Clause. And it ends up sounding a little something like this. The Constitution and the laws of the United States, which are going to be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land. In other words, 
if the federal government makes a law and if a state government doesn't like it, the federal law is always going to trump the state law. Federal law is the supreme law of the land. And again, anti-federalists losing their mind over this. They oppose the Constitution. They get all paranoid. So if you put the supremacy clause in there and the necessary and proper clause, paranoia. Um, wow. What, you know, is there anything the federal government can't do? Is there anything that they can't control? And if national law always trumps state law, then doesn't that make all the state laws irrelevant? And isn't that almost stating that the states are irrelevant? And that was the argument that the anti-federalists make. Um, what we're now seeing, though, as it moves forward, is that the Constitution knew how important it was to put way more power into the federal government. The Articles Confederation had shown that that wouldn't work, making the states have all the power. And so in doing it and establishing this Republican style of government in which power is divided between three branches and that all of these branches can check each other's power. And even when checks and balances in place, it, it, the anti-federalists are still not completely happy about it. Um, they basically decided to say, we will not sign off on this unless you guarantee in the document a Bill of Rights. And the Bill of Rights, they wanted it to outline specific individual liberties that the federal government would not be able to take away. And those rights, the first 10 amendments of the Constitution, are also known as the Bill of Rights. And I will be having an episode coming up on that as well. So we'll just do the Bill of Rights separately. All right. So I hope that breaks it down for you. That is pretty much the overview, the recap of the major things that you will need to know for the AP exam about the U.S. Constitution. There will be more vocab. There will be more details as we move forward in class. But this gives you an overall idea of where the power now lies in the U.S. government, what the U.S. Constitution did to solve the problems of the Articles of Confederation, and you're also seeing the beginnings of political parties, something that a lot of people, including George Washington, believed would be very dangerous for the country. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for tuning in yet again. I appreciate you. And I look forward to you tuning in for my next episode. And you keep up the good work.